The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Genesis, and today the next passage we come to is Genesis 1, 26 through 31. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed, that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you should have them for food. And in every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Let's pray together. Um, Father, we're told that there are different kinds of soils on which the seed of your word falls. Thorny soil, rocky soil, soil on a path and good, fertile soil. And it's only when the seed falls on that last kind of soil that it actually produces fruit. So please, help us to be that fertile soil this morning so the seed of your word can take root and bear fruit in our lives. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If there's one ideal that's predominant in many segments of American society right now, it's probably the ideal of equality. There are many in our society who focus uh, on equality as one of the most pressing needs in uh, America today, perhaps even the most pressing need. And so that's why you have things like the Equality Act and other initiatives focused on this issue. And a lot of these contemporary advocates for equality uh, believe Christians are perhaps the main obstacle that needs to be overcome. They believe Christians that are are part of the problem with this rather than part of the solution. And that Christians have been a part of the problem for a long time. Especially, it's claimed, in, uh, on issues like the equality of women and the equality of racial minorities. 
And so in general, I think it would be fair to say that equality is one of the most treasured values in our society today, and for good reason. I mean, who could disagree that equality is important? Like, what decent person would say that they oppose people being treated fairly and impartially? Yet perhaps we should ask ourselves, where did this idea of equality come from? It certainly didn't arise from a historical vacuum. So how did we, as a society, come to believe that equality is a good and desirable thing? Well, I'll tell you where this mentality didn't come from. First, it didn't come from world religions like Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Confucianism, animism, or paganism. It also didn't originate out of a secular worldview either. A worldview that, let's remember, rests on the bedrock of evolutionary theory. I mean, think about it. Evolution is based on natural selection, often called the survival of the fittest. And this mechanism of the survival of the fittest would seem to argue against um, equality and the behaviors that rise out of a belief in equality, such as helping those who have less power and who are marginalized and oppressed. Instead, the survival of the fittest would seem to imply that those who have power should avoid doing anything to help those without power so that the human race can continue to progress. I mean, that would be the logically consistent conclusion of evolutionary assumptions. So again, where did this idea of equality come from? Where where did the idea come from that those who have power should help those who lack it? It came from Christianity. And specifically, from the Christian idea taught here in Genesis 1, that all people are created in the image of God. That's the teaching that gave rise to our society viewing equality as a good and desirable thing. I mean, just look around the world. It's no accident that the countries that value equality are those that have been most influenced, at least in the past, by Christianity. So every time you hear a secular person talk about equality, just understand that they're actually borrowing capital from the Christian worldview, even if they don't realize it. Their secular worldview didn't produce that. Christianity did with its teaching that all people are created in God's image. Um, you know, all these secular voices that act like they own the idea of equality, uh, it kind of reminds me of a teenager whose parents buy him a super nice car on his 16th birthday, right? So he might be driving that Mercedes or BMW around town with his sunglasses on and acting like he's the coolest person in the world, 
But really, his money didn't buy that car. His parents bought it for him. And similarly, equality is a value that has its origin in Christianity. And in the Christian teaching found here in Genesis 1, that every person in this world is created in the image of God. And that's the main idea of this passage, Genesis 1, 26 through 31. Quite simply, God created people in his image. Right out of the gate, we read in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Notice here how God begins his creative decree. Let us make. That's different than what he said in his previous creative decrees. Up until this point, everything's been in the third person. Let there be be light. Let there be an expanse. Let the waters be gathered. Let the earth sprout vegetation, and so on and so forth throughout the whole chapter up until this point. But now, instead of the third person, let there be, God uses the first person. Let us So already we're given an indication that something unique is taking place. There's now a much greater personal connection between God and what he's creating. And by the way, this plural pronoun, us, is often regarded as the first glimpse of the Trinity in the Bible. Even though the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are named here, This plural pronoun does hint in that direction. And then as we move forward in the verse, uh, the uniqueness of this climactic act of creation comes into full bloom. God says, let us make man in our image. What do you think that means? That we were made in God's image. Well, simply taking that phrase at face value, it seems to refer to all of the ways in which we resemble God. We're certainly not identical to God, but we do resemble Him in certain ways. You might compare it to the way children resemble their parents. Although they're not exactly like their parents, they still often resemble their parents in things like facial features and hair color and eye color and other things like that. In fact, the Bible even gives us precedent for this comparison in Genesis 5.3, which states... When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. You notice any familiar phrases there? Adam's son is specifically said to be made in his likeness and after his image. So back in Genesis 126, when God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness, I think we have good warrant to view that as similar to the resemblance children bear to their parents. Specifically, a few of the ways in which we resemble God include our intellectual capabilities that are much higher than other creatures, as well as our inherent moral sense of right and wrong. 
our capacity for relationships that are characterized by love and commitment, our appreciation for beauty, and growing out of that, our creativity in various forms of artistic expression. So these are all abilities and capacities that animals just don't have, right? You don't see squirrels out there, you know, holding some sort of a a jury-based trial in order to to discern justice in a certain situation. You don't see squirrels, you know, arranging their their acorns in some pattern in order to make a, a beautiful work of art, right? It's because humans are unique in these things. And the source of that uniqueness is that we've been created in God's image. So this phrase of God creating us in his image refers not just to one thing, but to every way in which we resemble God. Yet the verse doesn't stop there. God goes on to say, with regard to humans, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So this is another way in which we're unique. As those who bear God's image, we're uniquely qualified to have dominion over the rest of the earth. Now, that doesn't mean that we're free to use and abuse the earth however we desire, but it does mean that we have a certain measure of delegated authority as God's representatives to govern this world on his behalf. We're essentially stewards of God's creation. Kind of like a business owner might hire a manager to oversee the business's day-to-day operations. That's the position, uh, to a certain degree, that God has put us in over this world. And then moving forward to verse 27, we read another statement of our creation in God's image. It says, so God created man in his own image, In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, whenever a biblical author repeats something, uh, that's a sign that we should pay very close attention to what he's repeating. Um, Ancient Hebrew writing didn't have things like underlining or italics or bold font. And so in order to emphasize something, biblical authors would often employ repetition. So, it's really important for us to understand what's being repeated here, right? That we're created in God's image. And yet notice that it's not just repetition, but that a little detail is added in this verse. It clarifies that both men and women, right, male and female, are created in the image of God. Even though verse uh, 26 and 27 both state that God created man in his image, It's clarified in this verse that man is intended to be a generic reference to both men and women. And just reflecting again on how unique we are, notice the sheer amount of space that's given to describing God's creation of human beings. Not only is the entirety of our main passage, Genesis 1, 26-31, dedicated to describing God's creation of humans, but much of chapter 2 is dedicated to that as well. 
Now, contrast this, uh, for example, with the description of God creating all the other parts of the universe back in Genesis 1.16. It says, And God made the two great lights, the greater light, like the sun, to rule the day, and the lesser light, the moon, to rule the night, and the stars. Those last three words, and the stars. Just think about that. That refers to the creation of billions upon billions of stars, and presumably, I would think, to the billions upon billions of galaxies in which those stars exist. So just think on that. The creation of untold billions of stars and galaxies summed up in three words, almost as if it were an afterthought. The focus of the chapter is clearly on the earth, first of all, and chiefly on human beings as the pinnacle of God's creation. Also note that after creating everything else he created, the text says that God saw that it was good. We read that six times last week in verses 4, 10, 12, 18, 21, and 25. But after creating humans, what does God say in verse 31? He says it was not just good, but very good. Another indication of our uniqueness as those who've been created in the image of God. And as I alluded to before, this teaching that humans are created in God's image, is, without exaggeration, one of the most significant and revolutionary teachings in the entire history of the world. It's been the driving force behind the reshaping of entire societies. For example, let's consider the treatment of women. Throughout human history, uh, women have been almost universally oppressed. They've had few, if any, rights and have usually been treated like property rather than people. Uh, Many societies have allowed men to beat their wives or even kill their wives without any legal consequences. Um, This was the case in the Roman Empire, for example, where the husband, legally speaking, owned his wife, and had the authority to do basically as he pleased with her, even to the point of inflicting capital punishment. Yet Christianity had a seismic impact on the way women were treated in the Roman Empire, giving women legal protections and rights and the dignity that's rightly bestowed on all people, again, as those who have been created God's image. This pattern has also continued throughout really the entirety of church history. Uh, Even though Christian missionaries of the past several hundred years are often criticized for the effects they've had on the indigenous cultures to which they've gone, one thing that can't be denied is that missionaries have done wonders for the status and dignity of women in those societies. It was Christians who put an end to the practice in India 
of forcing widows to burn themselves on the funeral pyres of their husbands. And Christians who have opposed the oppression of women through child marriage. And Christians who have opposed female genital mutilation. And Christians who have insisted on educating women. Again, just look at the world map. The countries today in which women have the most legal rights and protections are those that have been most influenced by Christianity. In addition, another way in which uh, the belief that humans are created in God's image has radically reshaped society is in the abolition of slavery. Although it's true that some who have called themselves Christians have defended the practice of slavery, uh, quite shamefully, I might add, many other Christians throughout history have risked their lives, careers, and, and reputations in the fight against slavery and eventually played a key role in abolishing the practice of slavery in both uh, England and America in the 1800s. Now, keep in mind that slavery is something that's been practiced for almost as long as the human race has existed. Yet where else have you ever heard of uh, any society voluntarily releasing and freeing its own slaves? Did the Babylonian Empire ever free its own slaves? Or the Assyrian Empire? Or the Persian Empire? Or the Greek Empire? No, rather it's the societies that have been influenced by Christianity that have eventually abolished slavery. And there are many other examples we could cite as well of the image of God making a, a, a radical difference in, in societies. For example, the practice of caring for the poor has its origin in the belief that every person bears God's image. Without that theological understanding, we might very easily turn a blind eye to the poor or even deliberately try to keep them poor, as we see historically with the so-called untouchable class in, in India's caste system. Yet the belief that even the most impoverished people are created in God's image leads us not to oppress them, but rather to have compassion on them and care for them and help them. This mentality also extends toward those who have disabilities. Um, the belief that all people are created in God's image has been the driving force behind compassionate care for those with disabilities. As I mentioned before, this is in stark contrast to what evolutionary theory would naturally lead us to do. Taken to its logical conclusion, a belief in evolution and the survival of the fittest would lead to us, uh, well, doing what the Nazis did and simply exterminating those with disabilities. In case you're not aware, the first victims of Nazi mass killings were actually not the Jews, but rather the disabled. They were called unworthy of life and unfit to live. And let's not forget the troubling history of our own nation either. There was a time 
less than 100 years ago, in fact, when those with intellectual disabilities were forcibly sterilized. Over 65,000 of them, in fact. And as we might expect, uh, this initiative was indeed led by the so-called progressive movement of the day, influenced quite explicitly and upfront by evolutionary theory. And that was, I might add, a very consistent and logical application of evolutionary theory. Now, thankfully, this practice of compulsory sterilization was eventually done away with, I would argue, because of the influence of Christianity on society, resting on the belief that all people, regardless of disability status, have been made in the image of God. And finally, let's not forget what is undoubtedly the most urgent area for us to apply this teaching of people being created in God's image in our contemporary society, and that is in securing protections for the unborn. Um, It's no secret that the pro-life movement in this country is largely driven by Christians, and the reason for that isn't that we like secretly hate women and just want to rob them of economic opportunity, but rather that we believe that these unborn children bear God's image just as much as any of us, and therefore that they deserve protection. In case we needed any additional confirmation, Genesis 9-6 prohibits murder and specifically cites the truth that we were created in God's image as its reason for doing so. And this really isn't anything new for Christians either. Um, Christians have always sought to protect babies from harm. Uh, You can see this all the way back in the Roman Empire. Back then, it was um, much more difficult to perform an abortion, and so a lot of people would simply have the baby and then leave the baby on a a trash pile somewhere, basically the city dump, in, in order to let that infant die. Yet, who do you think back then, would be the ones to go out to the city dump and rescue that child and adopt that child. It was the Christians. So these are just a few of the ways in which the Christian teaching that God created people in his image has proven revolutionary in societies around the world. It's led to the widespread recognition that every single person on the place of this planet bears God's image and and has, therefore, inherent value and dignity and worth simply by virtue, not of any ability that they have or don't have, but simply by virtue of being a human being. In addition, there are also some other very significant ways in which this teaching that we're created in God's image is relevant for our lives today. Uh, One of these is the massive implications that this teaching has related to our personal identity. Um, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that, generally speaking, our society is in the middle of an identity crisis. It turns out that without God, 
people don't even know who they are anymore. Their identity unravels. And that's what we're witnessing right now. Now, of course, people try to find their identity in a variety of things, like maybe their career achievements or their physical attractiveness and maybe intelligence or social media following or athletic abilities or sexuality or romantic relationships. Yet at the end of the day, none of these things offers us a stable sense of identity. So even though people are more than ever on a seemingly endless quest to find themselves and discover their identity, any identity that they manage to fabricate ends up being paper thin. And on top of that, what a burden it must be to have to manufacture an identity for yourself out of thin air. Is it any wonder that anxiety and depression are at an all-time high in our society? You see, it turns out that in order to know yourself, you first have to know God and understand that you were created in God's image and are therefore valued by God and loved by God. That's what anchors you and gives you the foundation that's needed in order to have an accurate understanding of your identity. And Genesis 1 gives us that foundation. In addition, not only does this passage have massive implications for our identity, it also has massive implications for our sense of meaning and purpose in life. Now, this is another area in which most people in our society seem to be terribly confused. Now, of course, there are no shortage of things to which uh, people will devote their lives, uh, often, again, advancing in their career or becoming Instagram famous or uh, just enjoying various hobbies and pleasures. But are these things really all there is to life? And even if someone devotes themselves to things that aren't as self-centered in nature, like maybe having a family or participating in various social causes, are even these things significant enough that we would really want to view them as our singular purpose in life and our entire reason for existence? <laughs> Probably not. And so without God, we're left with a lot of things that are enjoyable and perhaps a few things that are somewhat meaningful, but nothing that gives us the transcendent, that, that sense of transcendent purpose that we were naturally wired to desire. Yet there is one place where we can find that purpose, and that is in God. And the teachings we find in Genesis 1 point us in the right direction on our journey toward having that sense of purpose. Now, first, the very act that we were created in God's image indicates, well, that we were created to actually image God, that is to reflect His glory throughout the world. 
In addition, scholars also tell us that in ancient times, rulers would often set up statues or images of themselves throughout their lands in order to establish and demonstrate their sovereign rule over those lands. So our nature as God's image bearers also serves the function, in a certain sense, of establishing and demonstrating God's rule over this world. And that's certainly consistent with the pronouncement God makes in verse 26 about humans having dominion over the rest of creation. And that truth is then emphasized even further in verses 28 through 30. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. So this statement that we find in verse 28 about being fruitful and multiplying is both a blessing and a command. God's indeed telling us, generally speaking, to have lots of babies. Now, of course, there are certain exceptions and extenuating circumstances, but that's the general thrust of God's statement here. He also says to subdue the earth, and again, for a second time, tells us to exercise dominion over it. Now, that involves, um, among other things, developing the earth's natural resources in order to make them useful for improving our quality of life, and it serves as a strong foundation for scientific and technological advance. So all of these things are an important part of our purpose, yet our ultimate purpose is even higher than any of these things. Ultimately, the fact that we were created in the image of God implies that we were created to have a relationship with God. Again, the fact that we were created in the image of God implies that we were made to have a relationship with God. In striking contrast to everything else in creation, God created us with the capacity for that relationship because that's what he desires for us. And truth be told, that's the only thing, dear friends, as you search for a sense of purpose, that's the only thing that can satisfy the deepest longings of our soul. As Augustine so, so famously said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Unfortunately, though, our sinful rebellion against God has kept us from enjoying that relationship. Instead, our sins have alienated us from God and made us both deserving of and destined for God's judgment. Not only that, but in alignment with our, our main theme this morning, they've also resulted in God's image within us being marred. 
Thankfully, though, uh, we do find confirmation that we continue to bear God's image even in our fallen condition in passages like Genesis 9-6 and James 3-9. So we might say that God's image within us has been defaced but not erased. However, the central message of the Bible is that Jesus came to rescue us from this terrible situation and from our sin. He's the answer to our miserable and desperate predicament. Interestingly, Colossians 1.15 refers to Jesus as the image of the invisible God. No doubt bearing God's image even more than we ever did, since Jesus doesn't just resemble God, but actually is God in human flesh. And Jesus came to restore us as God's image bearers to the close relationship with God that we were always meant to have. The Bible's term for this is reconciliation. And we're told in Romans 5.10 that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. That's the way Jesus brought about this reconciliation. He voluntarily allowed Himself to be crucified on a Roman cross in order to take on Himself the judgment that we deserved, right? Jesus suffered God the Father's wrath so that we wouldn't have to. Then three days later, he resurrected from the dead so that he now stands ready to save everyone who will look to him for that rescue. And that rescue involves us not only being forgiven of our sins and reconciled with God, but also experiencing the restoration of God's image within us. As we've said, that image was uh, not completely erased, but it was severely defaced. Yet through Jesus, we can recover the fullness of that image once again. Colossians 3.10 states that as Christians, we've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, here it is, after the image of its creator. So that's what's happening to us throughout the Christian life in a process commonly known as sanctification. So sanctification is essentially the image of God within us being progressively restored. And actually in the New Testament, we find reference not only to the image of God in general, but even more specifically to the image of Christ. Romans 8.29 states that God's purpose for us as Christians is, quote, to be conformed to the image of His Son. Also, 2 Corinthians 3.18 states, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, that would be Jesus, right? Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And dear friends, it gets even better than that because 1 Corinthians 15, 49 tells us that one day the image of God within us 
will be fully and perfectly restored in the new creation. So this image of God that was initially imparted at creation, yet marred by human rebellion, is now being progressively restored through Christ and will one day be completely restored in the new creation. And so looking back over this passage as a whole and its main teaching that God created us in his image, it's difficult to think of a teaching that has more profound implications for our lives. Hopefully, through our continued meditation on this truth, we can have a deeper appreciation of our identity, a renewed sense of purpose, a deeper concern for the welfare of fellow image bearers, a greater desire to see God's image within us continue to be restored, and just a deeper sense of gratitude in general toward God for His wonderful goodness in creating us to bear his image. I mean, what an incredible privilege 